Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. Church, so good to see you. Go ahead and have a seat. So glad to be worshiping with you here today. 
Uh, inside of your bulletin is a gray connection card. I'm going to invite those here in person to go ahead and take out that card. You can begin filling it out as I'm speaking. Online, there's going to be a, a connection link there in the chat window. You can fill out that card digitally. And if this is your very first time with us today, all you have to do is take out your mobile phone and text the word hello to 717-872-5679. You see it there on your screen. Uh, but simply follow the prompts. This just opens a way for us to have communication with you, let you know about things going on here at Peckway Church. We can answer any questions that you have. Uh, there's also a place there on that card and online that you can put your prayer request. Every uh, day of the week, we as a staff, we meet together, we pray along with you uh, over the things that God uh, has on your heart, family problems, uh, any uh, health problems, those kind of things. It is our honor and privilege to be able to do that with you. But this is how we do that, through this card, through the online connection link, and through that text link. So please take a moment to do that at some point during the service today. Well, we are kind of coming towards the end of our sermon series. We've been talking about faith over fear, so I think we have one more week after today. But, um, you know, I, I, we all know the story about Chicken Little, right? He thought the sky was falling. And so, you know, as I thought about fear, and today we're going to look at how fear can deform our mind. And I'm reminded of the scripture that talks about how we are transformed by the renewing of our mind as we look into God's word. But, you know, that, that whole story about Chicken Little where we had, he the, the acorn falls on his head and he panics and he thinks that the sky is falling. And that's what fear can do to us when we start looking at things on social media or we hear it in the news or we get just a little glimmer, a little, a little, uh, you know, a tiny little bit of information. And sometimes our minds can run wild a little bit like Chicken Little. Let's watch. see how fear causes panic and we can start 
losing our minds, right? And so, but you know, we don't have to be that way because God's word is a strong foundation. It's truth that we can stand firm on and he never changes. And so that's what we're going to sing about this morning. Would you stand with me as we sing this next song together that our God is still the same. We simply just have to look back at the things that he's done uh, so that we can see that we can trust him. So let's sing that together today. today that he is the same yesterday today and forever go ahead and have a seat 
have a new song I want to uh, introduce to you. You may have heard it if you uh, listen to Christian radio, so please feel free to sing along with me. But, you know, as I think about fear, that we can trust in the name of Jesus, and there's so many things that we could say, right? We get angry, we get flustered, and we might speak something over someone. We might say something that negatively impacts them, but we can also choose to speak the name of Jesus, and it's at the name of Jesus that things like our anxiety and depression and fear and things like that, that they can just be crushed, they can be dissipated, because Jesus' name and all the power that there is in it, uh, we, we can trust that. So sing along with me if you know it. If not, just let these words uh, speak to your heart today. Jesus in the streets, 
Jesus in the darkness over every enemy. Jesus for my family, I speak the holy name. Jesus. We're going to shout it again. Shout Jesus from the mountains, Jesus in the streets, Jesus in the darkness over every enemy, Jesus for my family, I speak the holy name, Jesus. in Jesus' name today. So we're going to declare that together because we know that today. Our hearts know that. If we know Jesus, we know peace. So let's declare that together this morning. He is who he says that he is.
the wilderness Our joy in the heaviness And our way when it seems there is no way Jesus This we as your prayer to him this morning. We trust you. We trust you. We trust you. And your ways are higher than our own. Jesus, we trust you. We trust you. And your ways are higher than our own. In all things we difficult for you to sing that this morning, that you trust him today, that your heart may be struggling with um, standing on the truth, the firm foundation of who Jesus is. As I was uh, just spending a few moments with God this morning, he reminded me uh, of that verse uh, that talks about lean not on your own understanding but to trust in his ways, to trust him. Um, 
you know, so I recently have been going through some things where I've asked the question, why, God? Why? And he reminded me this morning that it's not for us to understand that our peace does not come from understanding the why. But just entrusting him because his plans are bigger than the plans that we can make. And the things that happen in your life are for a reason. He tells us that he works all things out for the good of those who love him. So if you're asking that question today, if you're asking why, would you just trust him? And would you lean not on your own understanding, but on him and on his peace? There's perfect peace in his presence, and he is here today. And so if you are afraid, if you are afraid of your future, or you are afraid of the why, would you fall on him today? Jesus, we trust you. Even though we can't see the future, even though we don't know the answer to our whys, would you help us today to lean into you, to open our hearts to who you are, Father, and what you're calling us to today as we hear your words, Father. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Pastor Scott. And worship team and good morning church. It's always a privilege to to be here with you and to share God's word together. And uh, today is, as Scott pointed out, we're we're nearing the end of our series. Next week we'll, we'll wrap this up. Today is part five of six in our series, Faith Over Fear. And today we're going to be camped out in 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 23. And so I'd encourage you to uh, Turn to that chapter in your, your Bibles. If you want to grab a pew Bible, it can be found on pages 201 and 202. And so again, reading 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 23. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah. With all his officials standing at his side, he said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and all the men of his family who were priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, 
Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of the Lord for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king ordered Doeg, Turn, you turn and strike down the priests, so Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day, when Doag the Edomite was there, I knew that he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the gift of your word this morning. And Father, we just want to, again, just pause and acknowledge your presence with us in this place. And we praise you. And through your presence, through the gift of your indwelling Holy Spirit in this moment, we pray once again for everyone here and everyone watching online. We pray that through your indwelling spirit, you would grant us the gift of open eyes to see, open ears to hear, and open hearts to understand what it is you are indeed saying to us this morning, Lord, for your glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. This is one of those hard passages in Scripture, and as we get deeper into this story, looking at the lives of King Saul and the future King David, what we see is essentially two men that are heading in opposite directions. King Saul continues to move further and further away from the Lord. He moves further away from God. And as we see, even in some of the language he uses here, which is a continuation of the path he's been on, he continues to be self-focused. He continues to only be concerned about himself and his honor and his name and how he looks in the eyes of other people. Whereas David, on the other hand, David is continually moving closer to the Lord. He's living in an experience where he's relying on the Lord because what we miss in the chapters leading up to where we are today is that David is on the run from King Saul. And in the passages that come after this, David is continually on the run from King Saul. So David is in a situation where he can either try to rely on himself or rely on the Lord, but he's relying on the Lord and being transformed in that process, which is the completely opposite direction 
that King Saul was moving. And so if I had to boil down this message today into one main point, it would be this. Fear, if given room to grow, can have a deforming effect on our mind and spirit. Fear can have a deforming effect on our mind and spirit. And I believe that this is what we see throughout the character of Saul, throughout this book of 1 Samuel. And part of the reality is that the more we succumb to fear, the further it will lead us or draw us away from the faith that God calls us to have. And again, King Saul is our example. And it's again, it's sad. We don't celebrate what, what has happened to Saul. It's actually sad. It's, it's even tragic that we see this sledy, steady, slow deformation happening in his life throughout the book of 1 Samuel. And just as a, a way of recapping, we, we began in chapter 13 where ultimately it was out of fear that Saul took on the prophet Samuel's role rather than trusting and waiting for Samuel to arrive. In chapter 15, it was out of fear that he disobeyed the Lord's command. In chapter 17, the David and Goliath passage, we saw that it was out of fear that Saul and ultimately all of Israel forgot who they were. They forgot their true identity as the people of God who dwell in the presence of God. In chapter 18, which we looked at last week, we saw that it was out of his fear that he drives away David, he drives away his family and others. And today, in chapter 22, we see that it's Saul's fear that continually deforms him as a human being and ultimately leads him to unjustly mistreat other people. And so in light of that, how, how can fear have that deforming effect in our lives? I think from this passage, we can see at least three things that we can draw from. And so there are three ways that fear can have a deforming effect on our lives. And I would say these are probably not the only three, but these are three that we draw from the passage. And the first one is this. Fear can desperately seek to hold on to power. Fear can desperately seek to hold on to power. Let me read verses uh, 6 through 8 again, and they're on your, your outline. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul was seated spear in hand under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. Saul, if we look at these words, Saul was a man that is more and more being filled with paranoia. He's a man who is exhibiting uh, suspicion. I mean, he talks about a conspiracy theory. But we know as outside readers following along in this story, is there actually a conspiracy? No. There's no conspiracy. But he talks of a conspiracy. And he's essentially trying to maintain any bit of control that he possibly can here. And this is all a result of the fear that is at work in him. It's deforming him. He's trying to grasp on to any power that he can. And friends, I would suggest that when we find ourselves gripped by fear, 
We tend to grip or cling tightly to earthly temporary things. And when we do this, when we live life like this, what we're actually doing is we're showing a lack of trust in the Lord and a lack of love for others. As I was thinking about this this week, my mind went back to a a movie I saw back in 2017. The movie was called All the Money in the World. I don't know if it rings a bell with anyone. But the, the movie's based on actual events. Now, I don't know how much Hollywood took liberty or license with it, but it's at least based on actual events. The story is about the 1973 kidnapping of then 16-year-old John Paul Getty. His grandfather was named Paul Getty, and the name might ring a bell. Paul Getty was the founder of the Getty Oil Company, the Getty Petroleum Company, and he was a multi-billionaire. But all the while, his grandson, John Paul Getty, was kidnapped and they were asking for a ransom, which compared to what he actually had was really a drop in the bucket. It was a a pittance. The whole time, he refused to help get his grandson back. And for me, I'll never forget, out of all the things in the movie, out of all the moments in the movie, I'll personally never forget the, the ending scene where they depict Paul Getty's death. And so essentially how it breaks down, if my memory is correct, is, is um, it's in the middle of the night. He's in his mansion and everything's dark and he, he can't sleep and he begins to just kind of wander through his mansion. And he wanders to this area where there's this fireplace and there's a fire still burning in the fireplace. And he's, the room is filled with all of this expensive artwork that he's collected. And he grabs one and he clings to it and he sits down in his leather chair clinging to this expensive piece of artwork and it's in that chair clinging to that piece of artwork that he breathes his last breath pretty pretty powerful depiction of whether that actually happened whether he actually you know passed away like that I don't know but regardless the scene really came across with the point that his heart was so focused on control. What he had, he was clinging so tightly to that even when his own grandson was in a moment of great need, all he could think about was himself and his own wealth. He clung to that, controlling as much as he could to the very end. I can't help but to think of Matthew 5.3, the first beatitude that Jesus teaches. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One way that we could literally translate that verse is this. Blessed are those who come to Jesus as spiritual beggars on their knees with empty hands out before the Lord. Because ultimately, those who realize they have nothing to bring to God except for their broken selves and empty hands... He says those are the ones who will enter into the kingdom. And that's the first teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Essentially, it's the first major teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. So a question for us in light of this, are we living faithfully, relying on Jesus with open hands, or are we living lives of fear that are leading us to be tight-fisted? Because fear seeks to keep us tight-fisted. It seeks to keep us holding fast to whatever we, we feel like we need to hold fast to. Whatever has our hearts. Jesus himself 
is the perfect example of living an open-handed life. Because let us never forget that Jesus, prior to him becoming flesh and walking among us, he was seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He was in a position of divine glory, position of divine honor, position of power at the Father's right hand. And he willingly, Scripture teaches us, that he willingly left that place, lowered himself by becoming fully human, by still being fully God, and ultimately continued to lower himself even more so to ultimately die a curse to death on the cross for you and for me. He lowered himself. He lived open-handed in order that you and I may be lifted up. That is our ultimate example here. As disciples of Jesus, as his followers, we don't live close-fisted lives. We live open-handed lives, lives of faith, lives of trust, recognizing that everything we have comes from him. It's not our own. We didn't earn it. It's a gift. A gift we freely receive and a gift that we freely give. But fear wants us to desperately hold on. The second thing, fear can attract others looking to take advantage of the situation. Fear can attract others looking to take advantage of the fear and our decisions related as such. And one example in this passage is the, the um, Edomite named Doeg. Look at verses 9 and 10. It's, we're told, but Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also, excuse me, also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And then skip down to verses 18 and 19. This is after Saul's officials refuse to take action, then the king ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod, which was a, that was a priestly, part of the priestly garment. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with all its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle and donkeys. Now, we're told that this man is named Doeg the Edomite, and the fact that he's an Edomite it tells us that he's a foreigner. He's, he's not a, an ethnic Jew. And I believe that we can draw from this passage that he's, he's also possibly a, a liar. He's telling an untruth here who essentially what he's doing is he sees that there's a little fire burning over here. And what he does is takes some gasoline and just kind of dumps it on that fire. Making it even bigger than what it actually is. Because we were, he, in verse 10, uh, he says that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. But if we were to go back to the previous chapter, um, there's nothing in that chapter about Ahimelech inquiring of the Lord for David, at least at that particular moment. But he says, I saw him do this for David. But scripture doesn't say that he did in that chapter. So possibly he's lying. Possibly he's making that up. And the second part of verse 10, if you look at the language there, he's actually using military type language. He, um, the Ahimelech gave David uh, bread and he gave him Goliath's sword, but he says he gave him provisions. And he says he gave him Goliath's sword, right? And so he's using language that is essentially just kind of feeding that conspiracy theory that is already at work in Saul's mind. But again, that's not what really, he gave him food and he gave him his sword, but David is not chasing after Saul. 
Not in any way, shape, or form. This makes us think of uh, verses like Proverbs 12, 12, which tells us, The wicked desire the stronghold of evildoers, but the root of the righteous endures. Specifically, the first part of that verse, the wicked desire the stronghold of evildoers. What does that mean? Essentially, it means this, that wicked people desire what other people have. And they'll go after it, and they'll do whatever is necessary to acquire it. I, I think of James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where James tells the church, he says, what's the cause of the, the, foral, the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from uh, your desires that battle within you? You want what you want, but you don't get what you want, so you kill and you covet in order to get what you want? That's essentially... A, a, a principle that we see at work here. Fear is, attracts others looking to take advantage. Fear can be open doors for people who desire what others have and they walk through and, and do whatever they can in order to get what they want. And so here is Doeg the Edomite fueling the fire, feeding the conspiracy theory that's only in Saul's mind. It's not real. It's kind of like if you have a rat issue, you have a rat problem, we might want to try to set traps to catch the rats. But the rats aren't the issue. The rats are the symptom. If you have a rat problem, that means there's a garbage problem. Because the rats are attracted by the garbage. Don't just set traps for the rats. We've got to clean up the garbage. Same thing is true with our fear. Our fear reeks. And our fear can attract opportunistic people looking to take advantage of the fear that we're living in. Thirdly, fear can lead to making extreme decisions. It can, it can look like that uh, Chicken Little video that we saw. We can, it can lead to making extreme, irrational decisions. Look at verse 17. This was... Saul's moment of irrationality here. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet did not tell me. And so what we see taking place here, as with the previous points, is that from a, ultimately a desire to maintain power and control over the situation, Saw here, and we can do it too, we can easily jump into making extreme or irrational decisions. We're not able to think clearly. The fear clouds us and makes us unable to realize the consequences, real or intended or unintended, of our choices. So, for instance, when we look at this passage, we see that Ahimelech and the priests of Nob, they're actually innocent. They know nothing of any conspiracy by David against Saul. And I think one of the ways we see this is through their response to Saul's invitation. When Saul invites them in verse 11, Ahimelech comes, but not just Ahimelech, all the priests come. Now why would they all come unless they all didn't possess a clear conscience before Saul? They didn't do anything. There was no conspiracy theory. They all came before Saul, demonstrating, like I said, they had that clear conscience. And so once again, I believe what we see through Saul's actions here is that he is demonstrating a lack of trust in the Lord once again. 
And interestingly enough, Saul's troops at the end of this verse, Saul's troops seem to recognize what's going on here. They recognize that his orders are, are irrational. They recognize them for what they really are. They understand that this decision is actually an injustice against the priests of the Lord. So they refuse to participate, which possibly shows their trust in the Lord or even their trust in David. Interestingly enough, psychologists talk about something they call loss aversion. Loss aversion. And loss aversion is essentially, it's an expression of fear. And how does it work? Essentially, it, it works in simple examples like this. If I lose $10, I am more upset over the fact that I lose $10, even if I were to then find $10. I'm still more upset over losing $10 than I am of finding $10. Again, it comes back to what we talked about, living out of fear, living that closed-fisted life. Saul seems to be somebody who is lost a verse here. What do we do with this? I want to give us two important things to remember this morning. Two important things to remember. And before we, we get to these, I want to just remind us that we're told in chapter 16 that David is the Lord's anointed. When, when God was choosing a man after his own heart, he chose David. And the prophet Samuel went to the household of Jesse, and instead of the older brothers, God chose the youngest brother and said, anoint him. This is the one. If you want the reference, it's 1 Samuel 16, verses 12 and 13. But all throughout 1 Samuel, David is serving Saul. He's been on the run from Saul. It hasn't come. Those words from God haven't come to fulfillment yet. He's not ruling as king yet over Israel. But nowhere in this book, nowhere in this passage, do we see David asking God the question, why? Why hasn't it come to fruition yet? And so I bring that up to say, what do we do when fear has us on the run like it does David? What do we do when things seem to not be going as we planned or th as things were maybe expected to go? I want to give us two things to remember here. And the first one is, they're both simple, but remember this truth. God's word will never fail. God's word will never fail. God spoke a word to David through the prophet Samuel. David was God's anointed. He was going to be the next king over Israel. But all the while, Saul is still king. David waits patiently for the Lord's timing. And I, I love what the, the angel tells Mary in... Um, Luke chapter 1 verse 37, because this is after the angel appears to her and says, you're, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And she goes, what? She says, I, I'm, I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. How's this going to be? And the angel says, it's going to happen through the Holy Spirit. And um, Mary asks some further questions, but then the angel says in Luke chapter 1 verse 37, he says, God's word or for no word from God will ever fail. You can take it to the bank. God's word to David never failed. 
Even though there was a long period of time between David's anointing and when he actually became the king, God's word will never fail. Why? I love what, what another angel says to John the Apostle in Revelation 22.6. How do we know God's word will never fail? Well, because his word is trustworthy and true, that verse says. His word is trustworthy and true. Why? Because God himself is trustworthy and true. And that's why his word is trustworthy and true. And that's why his word to us will never fail. But how do we know? Well, I love what Paul writes to Timothy as a powerful reminder. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, these words might be familiar to you. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word is God-breathed. That's a, a nice way of saying it's all inspired. Not just the red letters, if you have a red letter Bible, but everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's all the inspired word of God. And it is trustworthy and true because God is trustworthy and true. And because of that, his word will never fail. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? Because that's where we need to stand. That's our foundation. And the second point is this, and it's related. God's word has the power to help us hold fast to him. His word has the power to help us hold fast to him. Listen, friends, when, when we come to Jesus, when we say yes to Jesus, that, that's not the end. That's only the first step. We've just stepped over the starting line. There's a whole lot more to come. And we need to be getting into his word until his word gets into us. I love what Jesus says in John 8, verses 31 and 32. Most of us are familiar with verse 32 because it says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But I would suggest to us this morning that we cannot look we cannot take verse 32 and read it apart from verse 31. What, what the whole passage says is this. Verses 31 and 32 of John 8. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's an if-then statement. How do I know God's word is powerful and true? We live it out. The greatest apologetic for the truthfulness of God's word in our life is living it out. If anybody comes to you, whether it's a brother or a sister or, or somebody who hasn't said yes to Jesus yet, and they come up and they ask that question, how do I know the, the Bible's true? How do I know the word of God is true? Take them here. We could talk about it. We can talk about it and reason um, until the cows come home. But where the rubber meets the road is if we take what God is telling us and put, it, put feet to the ground. How do I know the word of God is true? We live into it. We live it out. That's how we hold fast to it. I love what David says in Psalm 119 verse 11. He says, um, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How does this look? Let me just give you this example from my own life. This was years ago, pre-kids, 
early in my marriage, I was working a job, and uh, for a while, I wasn't getting full-time hours, and, you know, newly married, bills, new mortgage. Doesn't matter if I don't get the hours, the bills still come. So I began to look for another job that would be a little bit um, more of a guarantee of getting those full-time hours. And I uh, had an interview with an agency. I won't mention what agency it was. And this was over in York County at the time. And um, this agency was beginning a new program. And the program essentially took adjudicated kids, so court-appointed court kids, and they were then given, kind of fed into this program, to use that language, and the program would take them and match them up with faith-based mentors. Sounds good so far, right? But it wasn't just a Christian thing. It would have been any faith. Any faith. And I don't know about you, but I, I firmly believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but, but through Him. And so... Um, this agency, they were really excited. They wanted to bring, they wanted to offer me the job, um, but I just said something like, "Can I have like 24 to 48 hours to get back to you?" But I didn't need that long, because when I walked out of that that building and I was walking across the parking lot to my car, a verse came right to my mind, and it's the words of Jesus in the Gospels when He says, "It'd be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and toss it into the sea than to lead one of my little ones astray." And I knew right in that moment that I couldn't take that job. But I needed the full-time hours. And they were excited to bring me on board. What was I going to do? I had, I had and, and I don't, trust me, I, I mess up a lot more than, than uh, I do well, right? So I don't want to give a picture that I'm like perfect obedient guy, because I'm not. But I think this is a powerful example of Psalm 119.11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right? And then when it comes down to it, who are we going to trust? Who are we going to follow? In closing, friends, what are you holding on to? Perhaps a little bit too tightly. What are you afraid of, of losing? Has that thing or that person or that idea become something that is causing fear and anxiety to actually increase in your life? What would actually happen if you decided to open your hands and let it go, and give it over to the Lord. Friends, I believe when we get to that place that there's freedom in that. I believe that there's freedom in our faith in Jesus Christ, and I believe that His kingdom is the only thing that will last. His kingdom is the only thing that is unshakable. So let us then be men and women who are willing to let go of the things of this earth in order to grab a hold of those unshakable things of His kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word to us this morning. Thank you for the freedom that we can have in you. Father, I pray that we would just have eyes to see where fear wants to keep us grasping, where fear wants to keep us holding on too tightly and ultimately missing the, the freedom that we can have in you. And Father, I pray that we would be a church that is just growing more and more hungry for you and the things of you, that the only thing that would quench us would be just being in your presence, being in your word, getting your word into our hearts. Father, work in us in this way. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Bring freedom.
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, church. I wonder what is holding you back. In your bulletin, or if you're watching online in the chat, you can uh, make a note of how we can pray for you. What is it that is holding you back? What's that fear? That, that thing that maybe you're processing, you're afraid to maybe make the wrong decision. I really challenge you to write it down. If you're not willing to write it maybe to share uh, with the staff to pray about, then just write it on your bulletin for you or put it in your phone and I encourage you to pray. Spend some time talking to God this week about that thing that you're holding on to too tight and you need to give to him to hold on to. This summer we had uh, 19 of us who chose not to be fearful to, and we chose to step out of faith and uh, to go ahead and host backyard Bible schools. I can tell you that some of the hosts were fearful, were a bit nervous about this. I can tell you that uh, some were fearful about maybe going to their neighbor who they've only ever waved to or had a, a casual chat, inviting their kiddos to come and join them. But I am so glad that they chose to step out in faith and not let fear stop them from sharing Jesus with these kids. They chose to let God help them, just like his word tells us he will do if we'll step out and trust him. And they used whatever they had to give. So just like these pictures show you, some of the sites were backyards, like we call it backyard VBS. Some were front porches, some were living rooms. People used whatever worked for them. Because they stepped out and because of your regular tithes and offerings, we were able to take VBS to 92 kids this summer. That's an increase from last summer. Now you might ask, why this instead of the big VBS in the building? I have to say after two years of personally being involved in this, I see relationships way different than the many years of doing VBS in the building. It just is a smaller field, just like having v having small group in your home or meeting with a small group here somewhere to go through the Bible. It allows for better relationships to be built with these kids and with their parents. Many conversations that just happen in the driveway or in the backyard during pickup. So, so excited for that. Thank you for praying us through that and for your giving. Out of that also came um, our school supply collection during the last month. Thank you for giving to that. Great job. Over 840 items were donated that will go to the loft, who will then disperse items to Penn Manor kids that need some supplies as they get ready to start school in another few weeks. So way to go. Now, we had a contest between Grown-ups and kids, thank you parents for helping the kids win. They're super excited to see me get pie in the face as soon as we leave from here and head to the gym. We're going to continue our celebration in the gym as soon as I dismiss you here. Now, if you're watching online, the slideshow, this is just a couple pictures, but I, there's a fuller slideshow we're going to share in the gym and we'll share on our Facebook page. So if you're watching online uh, or can't join us in the gym, that'll be available at Peckway Church's Facebook page and Peckway Kids' Facebook page later today. So check that out. Um, but 
like I said, uh, we're going to head over. We're going to do that right away. So if you wish to see pie in my face, I encourage you to make your way straight to the gym. Parents, your kids are already over there because they can't wait. And uh, you'll pick them up over there today, except for our infants who are downstairs in the infant room. Please, leave this space today, whether you're online or in this room, living out of faith rather than fear. You're dismissed.